0: There have been a good many attempts to define greatness throughout the years. Um, There was one general known as Alexander the Great. Uh, When people speak of something great, they often mean something large. The Great Pyramids of Giza. Others speak of greatness in terms of rising to an occasion. Some refer to Winston Churchill as the greatest Englishman who ever lived. And of course, sometimes it refers to the length of a literary work, the Great American Novel. That tends to mean it's a doorstop. Greatness has been defined in many ways throughout history, but usually it's something showy. Uh, No better example than one of the older names for Broadway, the Great White Way. That term has fallen out of fashion and I can see why. Um, But greatness, there are so many ideas about it out there. And yet, Jesus defined greatness in a very particular way. And I believe that Jesus defined greatness in a way that would make Jeeves one of the greatest men who ever lived. Next slide. I forgot to bring the remote up here. This is Jeeves and his master, Bertie Wooster. How many of you out there have heard of Jeeves? I get to introduce you to Jeeves? Okay. Jeeves is a character from a British writer who wrote over a hundred novels in his time named P.G. Wooster. No, P.G. Woodhouse. P.G. Woodhouse. Wooster is the name of the character he wrote. The man, on the, the man on your right is in theory the main character of most of these novels, Bertie Wooster. And Bertie Wooster, is not the sharpest tool in the shed. Bertie Wooster has a lovely habit of getting himself into complicated and messy social situations involving mistaken identity, involving snatching police helmets, involving uh, pretending to steal a silver cow creamer. uh, and, And there's a parade of colorful characters that go in and out of Bertie's life, such as His two aunts, one who's a delight, Aunt Dahlia, and one who is not so much a delight, who says frequently, Bertie, you worm. At any rate, Bertie Wooster, if we looked at classical definitions of greatness, would probably qualify on some level. He's wealthy. He has all the money he could ever find anything to do with. He has influence. He tends to get in prison after um, boat race night, and always manages to talk himself out of it. He is from the privileged aristocratic class. And he employs a manservant, a butler, Jeeves. But the Bible, I believe, would define Jeeves as one of the greatest men who ever lived, and there's a reason for that. Jeeves is not just a good butler; he is a great butler. Not only does he pick up after Bertie, not only does he, not only does he um, shine his shoes and give him very pointed fashion advice about what a gentleman should and should not wear, um, he solves his master's problems. He gets Bertie out of his difficult and complicated social situations. Um, in a rare story that's written from Jeeves' perspective instead of, instead of Bertie's, he says, brains are not desirable in an employer, but I enjoy getting along with, with Bertie very well. Jeeves, The distinction between the kind of service Jeeves gives And the kind of service that, what makes Jeeves' service so excellent is that it's voluntary. Yes, he's paid for it, but if Bertie Bertie truly paid Jeeves what he was worth, he could never afford it with all of the gold in England. What makes Jeeves such an amazing, servant is that it's voluntary and it's humble. No matter how much Jeeves gets Bertie out of a bind, he's always very quiet about it. He's very unassuming about it. He's not flashy about it. In the Gospel of John we see an interesting interesting thing happen. The Almighty Master of the universe makes himself a servant. In John 13, verses 12 through 17, actually, let's go there. It's in your notes, it's the very first thing on your notes. I'm listening to the rustling. All right, it says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. I wanna pause there for a second. I wanna pause there for a second because this is a detail in this story that we often gloss over. Um, In the process of washing his disciples' feet, Jesus was not so classily well-dressed as Jeeves. Jesus removed his outer garment and he would have been serving shirtless. I don't know if there is a taboo against speaking of our Lord and Savior in such a state But what strikes me about it is that he made himself totally vulnerable and exposed in that way. He he didn't just humble himself a little, ah, there we are. He humbled himself a lot. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. This is not just a little, little radical, this is really radical. This is like what would happen if if Birdie, decided to shine Jeeves shoes and then instructed the English aristocracy to start shining each other's shoes. It's a radical notion, truly radical notion. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus defined greatness. Jesus defined greatness as voluntary, humble service. Voluntary being a key word here. It's not great if someone's forcing you to render service, it's not great. It's not true greatness if you're just doing what is already expected of you. No, true greatness is voluntary humble service. It's also not true greatness if it's not humble. There is a pattern I've noticed in certain lines of work. I've seen it a lot in denominational work where people get into this battle of who's suffered the most. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I work these long hours, or oh, I have no weekends, or... People get into these weird little competitions to see who's suffering the most, to the point where it's almost criminal in some circles to say, I really love my job, and I feel well-rested. How many of you feel like it would actually be socially appropriate to say that anywhere? It's not humility if you're boasting about your service. It's not humility if you're using it to one-up your neighbor. And it's not great, either. What is great is all of that stuff that goes unseen. Greatness is the deaconesses washing the linens from communion. Totally invisible, no one ever sees it. Greatness is Mrs. Ang and her team doing the church's accounting. No one sees it. But it's very important. Greatness is the mother who stays home with her kids, tirelessly sacrificing nights, anonymously ensuring that the next generation will turn out all right. That's greatness. Of course, not if she's boasting on those mommy blogs. Greatness are the hidden things of this world that make it work. Voluntary, humble service. And there's there's a reason, there's a reason why this is so hard for us. All of us have been children at some point. What do children struggle with? A couple of things, but, Let's put, pick two classic examples, dishes and cleaning one's room. Dishes and cleaning one's room. There's a couple of dynamics that happen in this situation. Of course, mom and dad want, the, want, want Junior uh, to do the dishes without being asked. That would be awesome. But at the same time, Junior wants to know that all of the work that they put into washing the dishes was seen by mom and dad. What am I kidding myself? Adults struggle with doing the dishes. They need to be done. Eventually, someone has to do something with the dishes or you're going to be eating off of your hands or paper plates, right? Someone needs to do it. So, one of two things can happen. We can all act like adults and actually volunteer to do the dishes without making a fuss about it or you get into this situation, right, where the pile is slowly growing as one person walks past it, side eyes the other, then the other person walks past it, side eyes the other. And slowly the stack is growing, the stack is growing until you're practically to that point of eating off of paper plates. And eventually there's either an argument or a round of rock, paper, scissors. Eventually it can't be ignored and someone has to do it. Someone has to do it. And and the long suffering partner who wants to really have something to hold over the other one will give a deep martyr sigh. I'll do it. And loudly, loudly scrub those dishes and, and give the other person the stink eye as life moves on. Hopefully not to be repeated, but some households fall into this pattern. What I'm trying to get at here is that there are things that need to be done, unpleasant tasks, right? And sometimes people cannot be trusted. That stinker, and don't worry, I'm not accusing anyone in my household except myself. That stinker who lets the dishes pile up despite your goodwill and staying on top of them is probably going to get away with it. When we get more serious than the dishes, the truth is that some people cannot be trusted. You put your time, your effort, your love into them and they treat it like it's nothing. Some people cannot be trusted. Actually, I think I was a shade under dramatic when I wrote this. No one can be fully trusted. That sounds a little harsh, but let's think about it for a minute. I heard this great, I heard this great little chat by a famous preacher um, early in my ministry with some concepts that made sense to me. He got these from Proverbs. And... He divided the world into three kinds of people, the wise, the foolish, and the evil. Now, the evil are the obvious ones. They just want to watch the world burn. They, they will mess with you just to mess with you. That's, obviously they cannot be trusted. And then there's the foolish. The foolish are the sorts of people who, um, no matter how many times you advise them on how to do something, they're gonna make the same mistake over and over again. For example, um, the dish thing again. No matter how many times you tell this person to do their share of the dishes, they will keep on leaving it there. They will keep doing it. Not because they want to watch the world burn, but because they're foolish. They're foolish. They're just not learning from their mistakes. You see, a mistake, a mistake doesn't have to be wasted. I tell, I tell the fifth through eighth graders, and even my older kids, You're going to make dumb decisions when you're young. It can't be helped. You just don't have the life experience to make 100% good decisions all the time. You're going to make dumb decisions. Just try not to make them life alteringly bad, bad decisions. Everyone does stupid things at some point or another. Everyone makes mistakes, and that's where you get into the whys. The whys are those who make mistakes, but actually learn from them. The Sorry, I got distracted. I, I, I thought there was a slide in here that wasn't. Um, the whys, will make a mistake, they'll make a mistake, but they won't make the same mistake twice. They won't repeat mistakes. So this is the person who discovers they've made a mistake and then actually changes. Wow. So ultimately, we all want to be the wise person. But even the wise person makes mistakes and in that way cannot be trusted with everything, right? There are people that I would trust with my life in one way and not in another. I would trust, I would trust my parents to be there for me no matter what, but I would not trust them to do neurosurgery on me, because they are teachers and not medical professionals. On the other hand, I would trust the good folks at my local urgent care, uh, at my local urgent care to take care of any little issue I've got medically, but I would not go to them for therapy. They are not trained therapists. Now let's get real here. I would go, I would happily go to any of my pastor friends for spiritual advice. But I would not ask them, maybe with one or two exceptions, to construct a website for me. Some pastors try Very few succeed in doing it well. And of all of these that I've mentioned above, I would trust none of them, absolutely none of them to do construction work on my house. There are specialized skills in this world. There are specialized gifts in this world, and that's all right. But you've got to understand that these specialties limit people and therefore, they can't always be trusted. The number of times that, that horrible misunderstandings have come from assuming that someone is good at everything have happened. Or the number of opportunities that have been missed out because of the assumption that someone is bad at everything. Everyone is good at something, and everyone's really bad at something, too. (sighs) I am really bad at dishes. Or at least remembering to do them. (laughs) So we get back to our story. After Jesus had said this, he was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. We can easily forgive the mistakes of the wise who will learn from it. We can also also easily forgive the mistakes of the foolish. Most of us who have foolish friends know it already, and even recognize that each of us has a little bit of foolishness in ourselves. But what is really, really hard to do is to keep doing humble service to the evil. To keep loving those who are genuinely doing evil. And there are complicated, complicated arguments about whether helping someone who is doing evil amounts to contributing to the evil they're doing. I would say that there is a way to love a person who is evil without becoming a part of their evil. Our text continues in verses 22 through 26. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, Ask him which one he meant. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. When we talk about the Last Supper, when we talk about Jesus' great act of humility, the little fact that tends to be glossed over is that Judas, was there. Judas, whom Jesus knew was going to betray him, was there. Jesus, the almighty, powerful creator of the universe, the most perfect being who ever lived, stooped down to wash the dust off of Judas's feet. If we take the symbolism seriously here, in this church we teach that foot washing is like a mini-baptism and a way of expressing how God has forgiven our sins. This means that Jesus extended forgiveness even to Judas. Jesus extended love and service even to Judas. But he doesn't do this blindly. He loves with his eyes open. Love with your eyes open. By this I mean it is not love to love blindly. It is not love to ignore the realities of our untrustworthy human nature. It is not love to pretend that doesn't exist. In most of our pop songs, we, we hear statements like, love is blind, or we hear statements like, can't stop loving dat man of mine, as the verses of that song describe what is probably an abusive relationship. It's a great tune, but the verses are... It is not love to ignore the evil in the world. So we love with our eyes open. We love with our eyes open. I hope no one in this congregation is going through this situation, but someone who's married to an alcoholic or a drug user is not loving that person if they are purchasing the substances that are fueling that habit. And they are not loving that person if they are ignoring the reality of that habit. Pretending that everything's just fine does not fix anything. Does no one any good. But the very first thing that loving with one's eyes open needs to see, is a person's value. No matter how great in the eyes of the world, no matter how lowly in the eyes of the world, every person has value, is made in the image of God, and has something beautiful to offer the world even Judas even Judas now this can't be all you see but this has to be seen foundationally because if you don't consider something valuable you'll never give it a second look the famous filmmaker um, oh what's his name I just had it James Cameron had A recurring theme of seeing people in his films. In Titanic, it comes in the form of Rose looking over Jack's drawings and saying, you see people. As in, he could see the value of the people he was drawing. Later on in his blue Pocahontas ripoff avatar, um, you can tell I have no strong feelings about this. Um, (laughs) The greeting that they have is, I see you, I see you. And I see you is a way of saying, I value you, I value you. I took a drawing class at PUC as a part of my requirements for the honors program in Italy. And um, the first time we did drawing from life, It was portraits of each other's faces. And the girl in my class who I was drawing, I'm not that good at drawing, okay? Um, I'm passable at best. But what the exercise of drawing did for me was it made me realize that I'd never seen the beauty of this girl's eyes. She had the most beautiful blue eyes that I had never taken the time to look at before. When you love someone, you take the time to see their value. You take the time to see their gifts. You take the time to stop and take a good look. But at the same time, if you're really, really going to love, you have to see their flaws. This is not considered politically correct nowadays to love someone by seeing their flaws. By this, I don't mean that you pound down your friends and family with criticism. What I'm saying here is that if something is seriously going wrong in a loved one's life, you, as their loved one, have a responsibility to do something about it. As as Judas was leaving the room, Jesus actually looked at him and said, What you are going to do, do quickly. It was his way of telling Judas that he knew what was up and possibly even giving Judas a chance to repent. The Bible calls judgment God's strange work. And it's his strange work because he is a God of love and does not like having to cause pain. But sometimes pain is absolutely necessary for growth. I know we've got a few guys here who are between the ages of 12 and 14 who might have a clearer notion than most of us what I'm talking about. Growth in many cases requires pain. And at that age, some poor fellows grow so fast that they feel the growing pains. By seeing another person's flaws and loving them anyway, you are showing a higher order of love than pretending everything is fine. If you can, (laughs) if you can wake up every morning next to the same person, smell their morning breath, brush your teeth next to them, see them with their morning hair, Listen to them uh, gripe about their day at the end of it. Um, Put up with all of their disgusting habits, Uh, (laughs) both evil and innocuous and merely annoying. Um, You have reached a higher order of love than that first blush of love where that person looks amazing. The kind of love my great-grandmother had for my great-grandfather a love that lasted over 50 years and did not end with his death is a much greater love than your first love. Than the person maybe you share your first kiss with. And a greater order of love is raising a child. Hats off to you parents in this room. Because when you raise a child, You see them at their most vulnerable and helpless. You are responsible for their needs on the most disgusting and biological level. (laughs) You are responsible for shepherding them through the terrible twos. Uh, You are responsible for helping them navigate the terribly difficult and emotionally trying time of puberty. You are responsible for staying just close enough to support, but just far enough not to eclipse them as they are gaining freedom in their teen years. And then perhaps the hardest of all is sending them flying in college or beyond, watching them fly. There's joy, but also, do you remember me? Am I still relevant to your life? I invested so many, of the best years of my life in you, and now, just as you were getting interesting, you left. Kids, no, 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 not kids. Young adults, if you haven't called your parents in a while, do it. Do it. They love you. They love you. They put a lot into you, and they would love to hear from you. Parenting, marriage, long-term friendships and relationships only work if someone is willing to love despite seeing the other's flaws. Whether it is something as mandatory as loving your children if you are a parent, or as voluntary as a lifelong friendship, To be successful at a long-term relationship, you need to be able to see someone's flaws and love them anyway. But if all you see are the flaws, you're going to get a very dark picture of that person. That is why the ultimate master's degree in knowing another person is not just to see their value and their flaws, but to see their suffering. Everyone, for better or for worse, has their flaws and their value and their specific values as a result of the experiences that have shaped them. And especially a person's flaws often arise from their suffering. You, when you look at someone's value and someone's flaws, You're looking at what's there on the surface. You're looking at the what. You're looking at the what. But when you look at someone suffering, you're seeing the why. You're seeing the why. The great grandmother, I have a great grandmother on my father's side who is a very fascinating figure on a number of levels. Um, she, She was an illegal immigrant from Canada. Illegal immigrant from Canada. She stole a friend's passport, jumped on a train, was caught by the authorities in Chicago and sent on a train back to Canada, jumped off that train, Married a local guy named Martin, Martin Ramasca to get naturalized. Then decided, after they already had some kids together, that she was moving to California, whether he liked it or not. And so, went to California. Became a massage therapist, uh, include, one of her most famous clients was Lucille Ball attended church in the same place for decades. One day she walked in the doors of her church and they asked if she was a visitor. She was never seen there again. If you knew nothing about this, this older lady, about her suffering, about her past, you would say that was a very shallow move of her. But the best I can figure, thinking through her history and the pieces I have of it from, from the family who survived her, is that the church was her family. The church was where she found belonging. She was no longer in her home country. She was no longer even with her original husband. She had, found, she had, she had turned her back on her original faith of Roman Catholicism. Her Adventist church was her family. And in that moment, she felt like her own family had forgotten her. Now, is it reasonable to expect everyone to know everyone all the time? Perhaps not. We all need to show each other a little forgiveness because we're all flawed human beings. We're all, to some degree, untrustworthy. But, the unreasonable-seeming reactions people have to things often come from a place of suffering. And if we can understand that suffering, we can love them more intelligently. Now, if love sounds like hard work at this point, you're right. Love is the most demanding, relational thing you can ever attempt. Love is hard work. The heart is a muscle. The heart is a muscle. And as the children's story showed, it grows over time. As we forgive, as we learn more about people, as we see more, see value, see flaws, see suffering. We must love intelligently. There's this great quote from a secular humanist that says, love is the only emotion which requires intelligence. Love is the only emotion which requires intelligence. This isn't the kind of intelligence that is prized in universities. This isn't the kind of intelligence that gets you to pass all of your standardized tests. This is a kind of intelligence that anyone can learn and grow until the very day Jesus decides to take them home. Love is not a binary state. It's not a, you'd love someone or you don't. Love is, love is something that builds over time, that starts with a foundation of mutual respect, of seeing someone's value, that is built with the support beams, of acknowledging someone's flaws, that is decorated by learning the whys, by learning about the suffering. Love, love is something that we will be practicing throughout eternity and it will grow, not just until the day we leave this earth one way or the other, but it will grow. It will grow as the millennia roll by on the new earth, as the millennia turn into tens of thousands of years, as the tens of thousands of years turn into millions, and as the, as the millions turn into billions of years, we will be growing in our capacity to love. And that is beautiful. But it all starts here. It all starts now. Not with the perfect people we'll be associating with in heaven, but with our own Humble, flawed, Judas's here.